Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack an influential piece of writing from the past in order to make it more accessible in the present. Today we're looking at Laughter by Henri Bergson. Bergson was a French continental philosopher, writer, and professor of philosophy who was kicking around in Paris in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He wrote about several things, including consciousness, time, free will, evolution, and humor, which was the topic of these three essays, which first appeared in the Revue de Paris magazine in the year 1900. Today, helping me unpack these essays was Patrick McInnes. We had a lovely discussion about Bergson's ideas on the necessary conditions of funniness, the relationship between laughter and social norms, the differences between comedy and tragedy, the dichotomy between laughing and feeling sympathy, and the function that laughter serves in society. It is not an understatement to say that these essays completely changed the way that I think about humor, and I know that Patrick felt the same way. So if you're a lover of comedy, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. With uh, Patrick's background in improv comedy and his knowledge of philosophy, he was really just the perfect guest for this topic. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Patrick on laughter. Welcome, Patrick. I'm super excited to to be doing this. Our last, my last couple podcasts have been about like death and the absurdity of life. So it's, I, I was really looking forward to something a little lighter. Thank goodness. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yes, for sure. I guess up front, it would be kind of cool to discuss just like what your thoughts are on trying to dissect what funniness is. Because I know for a lot of people, um, especially comedians, a lot of comedians kind of have like a bit of an allergy to that type of endeavor. And right. feeling like, you know, by thinking about about it too much or by trying to dissect it too much, you're going to kind of kill the funniness in the process. Yeah. And there's a famous quote by E.B. White. He says, uh, humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process. I think there's, there's some truth to that. Um, but I don't, I, I feel like if you put it back in its natural environment, which you can't do that for a frog, you can do that with a joke. Um, I th think if you put it like, you know, you, you bring it back to life within a club, within a sketch, um, you immediately can revive it. And so, mm. uh, and if anything, then the people who may have been wondering about it can either be more informed, you know, I don't think it always kills it though. I, I think that that's a misnomer. I think, uh, especially this, I think you can really evaluate comedy and, uh, learn where it's coming from better and, and then make something better. I think that's the whole thing about like punching up jokes is that, you know, you, you figure out what's not working, what can work. Uh, and I know some of the best comedians, um, you know, Louis CK is just one of them. He'll write material until he feels like he's got it maybe 85% and then mm. he leaves it alone. He won't try to finish it because that has to happen in the moment on stage. So he just parks it, works on new material, and then, you know, he'll bring it all out you know, at the end, but he won't try to like work it until it's a fine tuned machine because at that point for him, he might be killing it in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard him say in an interview too, that a joke is kind of like, it's kind of like a fruit. Like there's a point where it's, it's not ripe yet. There's a point where it's ripe and it's perfect. And then there's a point where it starts to rot. So maybe right. by telling the same joke too many times, you can kind of kill it. I think also just the the um the act of kind of analyzing the joke kind of puts you in a different headspace. I remember um, Dave Chappelle saying in an interview in Inside the Actors Studio, he said something like, you know, he's like a lot of comedians, he's like, we don't even laugh at jokes. We just kind of like nod our heads and like, that's funny. Because they're kind of almost like figuring out all of the moves in the joke rather than maybe like the lay person is just having that immediate uh, gratification yeah yeah that, i mean as somebody who's been doing comedy for a while 
um, I'm that person. Like I'm, mm. I'm don't look to me for a laugh. Like, you know, don't be scanning the, the audience to then zone in on me. Cause you're not going to get what you want. I mean, I might really enjoy the joke, but it's because I'm dissecting it in the process. And again, mm. I wish I didn't do that sometimes, Yeah. but you know, if you've done it for a while and again, and I started kind of comedy, especially learning it from the inside out, uh, through a book called truth and comedy, which was my first you know, foray into understanding the the science behind it. And from there, it became really hard. I mean, I still enjoy stuff. And like, and I get giddy seeing moves happen, especially at the highest level, I can get really excited about it. But, um, you know, it's just tough. Like, I don't know how to separate myself from it like that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I kind of feel with myself that like, because I'm such a curious person, I like don't even have a choice in the matter. Like I'm going to explore this thing because I find it interesting, even if it just ruins my um, experience of anything funny. But I haven't yeah. found that to be the case. And um, yeah, I figured that was going to kind of be your response. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have wanted to do this podcast or read this piece. Right. Um, but yeah, I could I could imagine a lot of comedians just being like, yeah, I don't even want to touch it because it's it's magic and like, you know, don't don't fuck with it. Yeah, but I, I and again, like but any good engineer wants to know how things work and yeah. how they, you know, so again, you can build something better. You know, if you it would be easy to leave it alone, but I don't think either of us are going to become any better at comedy or anybody who wants to re- work like this be better at comedy. I think you're going to hit a limit if you don't understand what goes on behind the curtain. Mm, mm, for sure. For sure. I really enjoyed this piece. I mean, it really just transformed how I think about humor in in general and, um, you know, the function that laughter serves. And Bergson says up front that he basically has two questions he's trying to answer throughout these essays. Uh, the first one is to discover what he calls the comic spirit which is kind of just a early 20th century way of saying he's trying to find a grand theory for funniness. And he's trying to look at, all right, what are the similarities between somebody slipping on a banana peel and a funny face and a funny gesture and a play on words? Like, is there some common element between all of these things? Uh, so yeah, this grand theory of laughter. And then the second question he's really trying to to answer is what function does laughter serve for society and for the individual? And yeah, he kind of starts off by saying like a lot of philosophers throughout the ages have tried to answer this question more or less unsuccessfully, like going back to Aristotle, which that was new for me. I I didn't realize that this was something that a lot of uh, philosophers were pondering. And, and he also kind of says up front, Like, don't get too excited. I'm not going to give you this, like, grand theory. Like, we can't really distill funniness down into just, like, a single formula. But we can kind of look at some different angles and look at a few um, kind of, like, necessary conditions for something to be funny. Yeah. Well, cool. So maybe we can start off by talking about some of these kind of necessary conditions for humor. And just to quickly distinguish like what a necessary condition from a sufficient condition, necessary means like without it, it's funniness is not going to happen, but it doesn't guarantee that just by having it, it it will happen. Right. So that's the kind of way to be thinking about a lot of these things. They don't guarantee funniness, but they're required for funniness to occur. Right. Uh, Yeah. The first one he talks about, the thing being laughed at must have a human element or some relationship to what is human. Uh, he says, quote, the comic does not exist outside of the pale of what is strictly human. Yeah, I, I found that to be like a huge recurring theme throughout this book, um, mm-hmm. how important it is to be human and uh, to be comic, to be funny um, and how just across the board, like through, throughout the entire thing, he's just constantly referring back. He uses different words sometimes, but I feel like it's all going, even if we see an animal that appears funny, it's only because we think it's like a human, you know? Yeah. Um, or any other circumstance, like, um, 
you know, again, it's all relating back to the human part of it. Um, anything we find funny in the natural world, we only find it funny because of its connection to human, which was very interesting. Yeah, for sure. He says, uh, he says, quote, a landscape may be beautiful, charming and sublime or insignificant, and ugly, but it will never be laughable. And then he basically says the same thing about an animal, like you mentioned. Uh, he says, you may laugh at an animal, but only because you have detected in it some human attitude or expression. Yeah. He also says kind of the other things that kind of works the other way, where we laugh when a human is kind of like objectified. And he gives the example of like Sancho Ponchez, like getting shot out of a cannon and looking like a cannonball. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I thought that was interesting that it, it, it's either like personifying an object or objectifying a human can, can be funny. Yeah. Yeah. and, And that's the thing. I had no idea how important it was to, um, to, to keep the humanity involved in any kind of relationship for jokes. Because uh, if it's not there, you know, according to Henri, and I think in reality, like, it's just not funny. I, I've tried to find things, and I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's only yeah. funny if it's relatable to people. It's, it's a fact. Right. Cool. So that's kind of the first necessary condition. The second one, the way that I kind of paraphrase this idea is the person laughing must at least momentarily be disconnected from any feelings of sympathy or pity for the thing that they're laughing laughing at. So in other words, they kind of have to be a disinterested observer, at least for that split yeah. second when they're laughing at the thing. Yeah, yeah, that was very interesting to me too. Again, then like the idea of um, sometimes in real life we can laugh at something and then catch ourselves and go, oh, we shouldn't be laughing at that. But it's it's because our guard is down, you know, that we're able to laugh at some things, mm. um, you know, and then some people have no guard and that's why they just keep laughing. But, <laughs> right. you know, most of us, if something ha- like there can be some shock or something and we can get it like a grin, but we correct it immediately because we realize it's not socially acceptable to laugh at certain things. Yeah, absolutely. But we need that break. Absolutely. And I think that's probably also why there's the like the too soon factor. Where like sometimes, you know, especially like right after a tragedy, there's like, I think it was um, Daniel Tosh. He was, he's basically like, I made a 9-11 joke the day after 9-11 on Twitter. And like, you know, that was his, he said this years later, and that's kind of funny in itself. But he, I think, yeah, I mean, the absurdity of that is most people would be like, all right, we're not ready to laugh at this. And I think Bergson would say we're not ready to laugh at this because we're not able to temporarily suspend this feeling of sympathy or empathy for, you know, the in that case, the the people that died in the, the tragedy. Yeah. And sometimes like that separation just on a much lower level if somebody slips and falls, like sometimes if it looks like a Pratt fall, it's funny until we mm. realize, oh, wait, they're actually hurting, you know. Just, you know, but again, there has to be that separation uh, because if we're so in, entrenched in feeling for that person, then there's no way we could laugh, you know, and, and that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That whole like, it's only funny until somebody gets hurt. The other thing this reminded me of was um, I recently read uh, the book Brain Droppings by George Carlin. And this was kind of written near the end of his life when he was kind of a cynical old bastard, a funny cynical old bastard. But he said, um, quote, I frankly don't give a fuck how it all turns out in this country or anywhere else for that matter. I I think the human game was up long ago. And then he says, uh, the decay and disintegration of this culture is astonishingly amusing if you are emotionally detached from it. Wow. Yeah, and that's a theme that he he comes back to a lot and he's kind of saying like I I don't really care about ma- trying to make things better or he's just kind of like I just find the whole thing funny because at least in his older age he had just detached emotionally from it. Yeah, and it asks the question, you know, what's you could choose to be upset about everything all the time. You absolutely have that right and people make mm-hmm. that choice. 
but I don't know if it's a choice, like if you were able to pick objectively, you know, distant from both choices, you know, could you laugh at things sometimes or could you be completely engrossed in things all the time? I think you'd pick, I'd like to laugh, but that's not a choice a lot of people make. And that's why, that's why I think part of like the, I don't want to say the woke culture, but like just how sensitive people can be and how comedians who should be able to make jokes are finding it harder to make jokes because Mm. they're taken so seriously. Right, right. He kind of gives you a little bit of a thought experiment in this section, too. He says, try for a moment to become interested in everything that is being said and done. Act in imagination with those who act and feel with those who feel. In a word, give your sympathy its widest expression. In a gloomy hue spreads over everything. Now step aside, look upon life as a disinterested spectator. Many a drama will turn into a comedy. Yeah. I think that's a really accurate statement. Yeah. And the other, I guess just one other point on this that I I was kind of thinking about is like when you watch a lot of comedies, you know, they're, they're funny and we're a lot of times howling, laughing, but a lot of times for the person, the, you know, the protagonist in the the movie, like it's a tragedy, like their life is falling apart, but because for them, they, they are very much emotionally evolved, emotionally attached to what is happening to them. But for us, we're able to kind of, you know, distance ourselves a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, cool. Maybe we can move on to the next kind of uh, necessary condition of of funniness. And I think this is really his his main thesis throughout this. And I kind of termed it his like rigidity theory of funniness. Mm -hmm. So essentially, to Bergson, funniness is a rigid inelastic element butting up against a extenuating circumstance which requires elasticity flexibility and change um he says uh, something mechanical encrusted on the living and again i think once we start going through some examples of this in different domains this uh formula is going to start to make a lot more sense and he, he kind of starts this by talking about somebody slipping on a banana peel. And he says, all right, well, when you look at why is it funny that some, why do we laugh when somebody slips on a banana peel? And he's saying, well, basically, you know, we can imagine that this person has kind of walked down the street, maybe the same street every day for the last couple of years in the same way, more or less. And because of that, they've kind of, just been able to zone out and become kind of absent-minded they're just kind of going on autopilot their behaviors become very mechanical and because of that they're not paying attention to this one day where there's this new extenuating circumstance uh namely the banana peel and then the slip on the banana peel is that kind of butting up of the rigid absent-minded behavior with that living element And this is kind of where the social function comes in as well. The laughter from other people, say there are other people around seeing that and laughing at the person, they're kind of waking him up in a sense and saying like, hey man, like you got to be paying attention in life. You have to be constantly adapting to your surroundings. You can't just form this habitual rigid behavior. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting too, just with this little thing, just how... Bergson did like really stress the rigidity of of the the gate, you know, like the rigidity of the walk and how like we're so certain of everything until we're not. Mm. And that's when it becomes funny. You know, the second like, again, we're so caught up in everything that we believe to be true until it's not. And then it's funny. And then we have a choice to either accept it as funny or we become miserable. You know, I don't know what what how that's defined in a, in the role of a character because usually just have heroes. But you know, and, and it's not often depicted as the person that slips on the peel and then slinks away and never walks down that street again. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so because well, that's got to happen. Right. Well, and and I think the more arrogant the person is walking down the street, the harder we laugh, the more kind yeah. of like confident and cool. Like I, I've got it all figured out. I've got all my shit together. The harder we laugh when they slip on that man peel, because, again, it's like we're kind of from the outside saying like, no, man, like life is constantly changing. Like you haven't adapted to this new thing in front of you. And 
you know, as the, as the herd surrounding you, we're kind of correcting your behavior in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, this also kind of lights up just something that is throughout the book, but just, uh, judgment associated with comedy. You know, the comic mm. is a judge too. I think, you know, they're, they're kind of pointing out either the judgment of society or the judgment within the person, but it's a reflection of us, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think it, it would be also be good to kind of separate a comedian from a comic character because throughout this, he talks a lot about, um, the comic character. And it's like, obviously we're not talking about like comic book characters or anything, but he's talking specifically about kind of like the funny person we're laughing at in a play or a movie who I think is different from the comedian. I think the comedian, especially if it's like a stand-up comedian, a lot of times is helping us point at somebody and is kind of in on the joke saying like we're laughing at at him whereas the comic character a lot of times or not a lot of times he would say all of the time is unaware of their own rigidity unaware of what other people are laughing at so so yeah the comic character is being laughed at the comedian i think is you know pointing and steering others to laugh at somebody else or- yeah yeah and i and it, the also just the uh i know you mentioned this earlier for a second but another thing that seemed to jump out a lot is is how important it is to be absent-minded mm. for the comic to be present like you you know can't you can't be an aware there can't be an aware character within the comic because then all is lost i think that goes back to the dissection thing but if there's enough absent-mindedness then comedy is definitely available i'm sure that's a condition you know yeah, he says uh, a comic character is generally comic in proportion to his ignorance of himself. The comic person is unconscious. Wow. Yeah, and then he says uh, the comic character becomes invisible to himself while remaining visible to all the world. And yeah, I was thinking like some examples of this would be like the movie Anchorman. Like mm-hmm. in that in that case, I think the thing that makes Rod and Burgundy so funny is he's extremely pompous, extremely self-absorbed. That's his kind of rigid characteristic, but he's naive and unconscious of that fact. But to us, the audience watching, it's so, so obvious. But to him, if you were to say to him like, hey man, you're really pompous, he would surely deny it. And what on earth are you talking about? You know? Yeah. So I think that's, that's super important. And also why he says, you know, the correct, when we get to the corrective, what is the function of laughter? Laughter is basically other people trying to wake that person up from their sleep and saying like, oh, these people are laughing at me. Like there must be something in my character that is rigid that I'm unconscious of. Right. The other thing, I guess, before we move on to some other examples, he doesn't take it here, but I'm, I'm curious to kind of look at this from like an evolutionary angle. Um, all right. So just hear me out. But, but I was thinking like, all right, so during a lot of our evolutionary history, food was scarce. We might go days between having meals and our brain burns the bulk of our calories. And, you know, people don't often think about it this way. Usually we think of like when you're working out, you're burning all your calories. But like if you play a game of chess, like you can burn up to 6,000 calories. So in other words, like thinking is very expensive. Your brain is constantly eating up calories. And for that reason, we evolved a lot of mental shortcuts to save cognitive energy. And we call these shortcuts habits. So a habit's basically just an unconscious behavior that, you know, if something has worked well in the past, then we're able to kind of save on this cognitive energy and just kind of habitually, rigidly go throughout this routine and, you know, kind of mentally check out. Um, But sometimes when we mentally check out and we're just kind of going through the motions, you know, life kind of smacks us in the face and oftentimes to a humorous effect or at least humorous to other people. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I think you can think about that with the guy slipping on the banana peel. In a sense, he's, you know, saving cognitive energy by just 
zoning out while walking down the street. And yeah, life is kind of saying like, hey man, you can't you can't zone out here. Like you got to be paying attention and adapting. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Um, I had no idea about uh, the calories burned playing chess. My God. Yeah. <laughs> I got to play some more chess, lose yeah. some weight. But uh, that's that's really something. Yeah. And, and I think that's it. Like just as a personal side, like I I play darts quite a bit. Mm. Um, and when I really focus on the release and the form, I'm pretty good. Like I think I'm real good. But the amount of concentration that it takes to do that is a lot. Like I and I had no idea until I kind of learned a new form where I, you know, I didn't realize the difference between unconsciously just chucking a dart at a mm. board requires so much, you know, however many calories per hour. But when you're really zoned in and focusing, I mean, it requires everything you have. And then yeah. you're exhausted. And I, I really, until you've just said this about chess and everything, I didn't realize how can it be so exhausting to be so conscious when I play chess? But it's because of the awareness that, you know, or the, uh, the calorie demand of awareness. Yeah. And, and you could imagine a funny scenario where you're just zoning out playing darts and, you know, throw one into somebody's head or something. <laughs> maybe that wasn't Sure. Funny. But yeah, so maybe we can start going through a few of these different types of humor. So he talks about like basically this rigidity formula it works when we're talking about funny faces it works when we're talking about funny movements um funny beliefs maybe we can talk about uh funny faces because i thought this was a really interesting one well it was interesting it was also interesting just how much he deals with grimacing how important grimacing is to Henri. like it's mm. a big part of like you know everything starts with a grimace i feel like grimace equals comic for him yeah well in in the the kind of theory for the facial f feature is that there's some kind of rigidity in the face despite maybe a circumstance that should require some flexibility mm -hmm. and maybe like the grimace i think of you know ever see like a little kid who's on santa's lap and he just has this like permanent scowl mm -hmm. like that's i think that's funny to us because yeah, you can put this kid in like the happiest situation in his life and he's just like fucking pissed off. Yeah. The the other kind of flip side of that that I, I thought of would be like um like somebody who has like really bad Botox or like a really bad facelift who basically is like incapable of frowning. So they right. just kind of have this rigid permanent smile. Like you can imagine that person, I don't know, at a funeral or you know, watching a really sad movie and it or, becomes... or at a wedding yeah, yeah, where you can't, I mean, cause I, I feel rigidity. I don't think there's permanent smiles as much in Botox as there are permanent, you know, like uh blank stares. Okay. So I yeah. think like, you know, at a surprise party or, you know, or a, a, a wedding or a birthday or something like that's where the rigidity of, of a emotionless face would be even more you know, <laughs> caught off guard or whatever. So, right, right. Either one works, but Exactly. He says, uh, quote, a laughable expression of the face is one that makes us think of something rigid and so to speak coagulated in the wanted mobility of the face. And yeah, pretty similar to that. He talks about rigid movements, rigid body movements. And, you know, a lot of times the movements that make us laugh are ones that are very like machine like. Um, the example I thought of was the, um, there's an SNL bit called night at the Roxbury mm -hmm. where the, they're kind of poking fun at these like bros that go to a club and just like hit on everybody. And they, throughout the whole bit, they're just doing this like bobbing motion with their head over and over, no matter where they are. So again, I think that's a kind of like, it's this rigid machine like movement and it becomes ridiculous when you see that those guys, like, even when they're not in the club, they're still continuing this, like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, like, um, just going back, like, the, the, you know, the machines have got to be human-like to be funny. But if they are, I mean, it explains all the, the robot... I don't know. There's a lot of robot movies out there that kids love. I don't know, Big Robot 6 or Robot, I don't know. I can't think of the name. Oh, Hero 6? 
mm. anything? Well, anyway, tr- take my word on it. There's there's a lot of robot movies that kids all love. And and again, like and uh, I don't know, real steel comes to mind. We love converting robots into human beings. And it's just mm. funny, you know, um, and I think, you know, Max Headroom, which is probably predates you a little bit. It was like a character that was like supposed to be like a virtual reality AI kind of thing. But, you know, we found it funny in large part because it was a human like machine, mm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That goes back to the kind of um, anthropomorphizing or per- personifying thing where, yeah, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure if the robot stopped reminding of us of a human, we would stop laughing at it. Um, yeah. Then you have, you know, um, Space Odyssey 2001, you know, where it's <laughs> it's the AI we're afraid of. You know, there's no human in that red eye, you know, that you're looking at throughout the film. Mm. Whereas, you know, any other number of uh, AI movies since, you know, uh, we're excited about, you know, because, again, they're very lifelike. Right, right. He also talks about, um, like, fashion and clothing. He says, uh, quote, only when we are dealing with the fashion of the day, we are so accustomed to it that the garment that the garment seems in our mind to form one with the individual wearing it. We do not separate them in imagination. And I think at another point, he says, like, conversely, when we see somebody who is wearing a fashion that is very old, we immediately separate the individual from the clothing. So, you know, when if you were to walk down the street in New York and you saw somebody dressed like a, you know, aristocrat in the 1700s, you would immediately separate the individual wearing the clothes from the clothes. Right. I think also what he's implying there is the reason we would laugh at that person walking around in that clothing is because their choice to, you know, wear something from such a long time ago is, is rigid is they have Mm -hmm. not updated. They have not changed with the times changed with the culture. Um, I also think of like the movie Austin Powers where he's he's rolling around in his like 70s leisure suit and it's now 1990 and like the people are laughing at him and saying like, oh, are, are you in the show here? And yeah, it's again, he has not updated. He's he's kind of rigid in his his clothing selection. And definitely and just to give credit where credit's due, like to the Upright Citizens Brigade in their kind of like molding this at least for improv and i think it applies to all the things we're talking about is the first unusual thing you know that's Mm -hmm. what we really zone in on and that's what they work on so much is you know so again if it's a person if it's 1999 but you got a guy dressed like it's 1967 immediately that's funny that's so great i'm I'm glad you tied that in because we might as well kind of go here now because we're dabbling in it is when he's talking about the social function of laughter, again, the person or people being laughed at are often those who are not kind of conforming to the norm. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, yeah, they're, they're basically, you know, laughter is act, acting as a corrective. It's basically saying you are not like everybody else here and, you know, in the case of Austin Powers, like he's not aware of the fact that he's not fitting in. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and what a great story in the sense that, you know, he had to go back and then learn what's gone on in the last 30 years, you know, and why is he, why is he so kind of uh, seen as, as, as absurd as he's being perceived? Mm-hmm. And then ultimately like every great comedy, he doesn't learn any, he goes right back and he's still loved for it. You know, he doesn't <laughs> right. change. It's not like, them, you know, Austin Powers two or three or anything saw him as an updated mod man. Yeah, you know, he's wearing the exact same outfit because <laughs> the joke still works. Exactly. Yeah, and if he did change, the the humor would be gone. We we would no longer find it funny. Right. Yeah. That the yeah. constraint is he must stay in the sixties. You know, the sixties called and they want your clothing back, and he's not giving <laughs> it back. You know, it's, he's yeah. staying with it. Right. And a few more kind of points on this. He he says, "quote." Society will be suspicious of all inelasticity of character, of mind, and even of body. 
because it is the possible sign of a slumbering activity as well as an activity with separatist tendencies that inclines to swerve from the common center round the uh, excuse me round which society gravitates. So again, it's uh, it's kind of straightening out any eccentric person who might be straying too far from the the social norm. And he's also saying laughter is correcting to what is socially normal, what is sociable, not to what is moral. Right. And that's also a big point too is there's really no morality in all of this. And he he demonstrates this by saying you could take something that is commonly thought of as a virtue, something like honesty. But if you make something like honesty too rigid, it becomes absurd and laughable. And that's where you get something like um, like the movie Liar, Liar. Mm-hmm. Like in a sense, we think of honesty as a good thing. But if you your honesty becomes radical honesty and this rigid, unwavering honesty then you can quickly see throughout that movie all these circumstances where honesty is going to be funny. Well, what happens if uh, you're defending somebody in a court of law and you need to bend the truth? What happens if uh, the woman you just slept with wasn't that good in bed and you need to tell a white lie? Like all of this humor comes from his inability to be flexible. Right. Have you, and on that note, Ricky Gervais, have you seen his film? um, I think it's called The Origin of Lying. No, I have not. Oh, uh, it's it's a really good film. It's probably fifteen years old or or so, or maybe ten or fifteen years old at this point. But, um, you know, it's it's the same thing. It's a modern day story told from some you know New England village or whatever. You know, where everybody's pretty nice, nobody lies. And then this guy, I I, I don't know, I can't remember the whole story, but ultimately he makes like tells like a fib, but is believed. And then realizes, oh, my God, like to him, it's a magic. It's a superpower now, his ability <laughs> to lie. And so, you know, and what would you do with that superpower? You know, of course, yeah. you'd abuse it. You know, you'd use it and use it and abuse it. And um, and then, unfortunately, then everyone begins lying and then it's useless, you know, that's, and the world becomes hard. That's I love that because that it's kind of the inverse of liar, liar, where liar, liar. It is, yeah. It's a world where everybody lies and this guy that can only tell the truth. And I think, too, that points out that it is extremely dependent on the time and place and the social customs of the time and place in which something becomes funny. And so you can think of a lot of these comedies that are now classics like Crocodile Dundee or Coming to America, where, again, it's like this person has moved to a new part of the world where there are different social norms and the humor comes from them not from them being too rigid and not kind of adjusting to okay well even though i'm in new york city i'm gonna still act like i'm on the outback mate like yeah yeah. you know and then the humor springs of that yeah no it's amazing again just thinking about the idea of you know like when you think about bell-bottom pants which I often do. Yeah, which right now, as you thought of them, you started laughing. It's funny. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because it's not something that we ever lived with where that was the societal norm. Now, if I, you know, I, I don't even, you know, if I just talked to you, if I just said cuffed pants, mm-hmm. well, there's nothing funny about that. Those are just pants that you wear. I'm wearing cuffed pants right now. You know, but when I say bell bottoms, it immediately elicits laughter because it's not of our time. And it's not. And so if we imagine it again, present day, that would be ridiculous for somebody to wear bell bottoms or whatever. You know, that's just one outfit. But a zoot suit, you know, you see a zoot suit or you see or a onesie, a a man wearing a singlet onesie Mm. or something. You know, it's just funny because it's not, you know, it's it's too flexible for the rigid norms of today. Absolutely. And you can flip that, too, because you could see you said like, um cuffed pants there's nothing funny about cuffed pants but if you put cuffed pants on like napoleon bonaparte like it becomes funny you know see because it would not be socially acceptable in his you know time in history yeah yeah so 
Yeah, I think that's that's so great and such a huge point. He says, um, quote, laughter is above all a corrective being intended to humiliate. It must make a painful impression on the person against whom it is directed. By laughter, society avenges itself for the liberties taken with it. It would fail in its object if it bore the stamp of sympathy or kindness. Wow, what a great quote. Yeah. And he says at another point that um, even fear of laughter works as a corrective. Yeah, and I mean, how often do we not kind of take chances on things because we're afraid of being laughed at? Oh, yeah. Everybody all the time, except for the most fearless, which, you know, again, those are the people that, you know, become kind of known, right? Like Mm. they either become known or they become statistics, you know, that they either become known people or, you know, stories you never hear about because they, they took a risk too great. Um, but again, like, yeah, within our own lives, I think, uh, that's part of our journey is to, um, fight past those things that we're afraid of. And then, you know, then, then again, that's how we become the heroes of our own story. Yeah. And exactly. And if, if laughter is the corrective to conform to the the social norm, then by definition, if you are going to be different from other people, you are going to be laughed at. Yeah. It's so interesting. There's so many like different implications. I was kind of thinking, if this kind of is our working definition of the the function that laughter serves in society, it makes sense why a sense of humor is such an attractive trait. Because, yeah, a lot of, you know, like evolutionary psychologists will say, okay, well, laughter or a good sense of humor in another person is an attractive quality because it demonstrates that that person has a high IQ. But I think you can go a step further and say, it demonstrates that that person has a high social IQ and that they are very aware of what is socially acceptable because for a comedian to make fun of something, they have to know what the baseline is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, have you ever seen, um, uh, Tropic Thunder? Is that it? Or something? Yeah. Uh, the movie with, uh, Ben Stiller and Robert Downey Jr. And, Never I saw it. I, I'm familiar, familiar, but I, I've not seen it. It's a comedy that uh, I think it came out in 2008 or nine, like right around the time that Robert Downey Jr. was releasing the first Iron Man. I think it may have been the next film he did. Um, but he wears a full blackface in the film, mm. um, and he's playing like a he's playing basically, you know, like a Robert De Niro. Uh, of his time. You know, he's, he's like the critically acclaimed actor and he decides he's going to do this Vietnam movie where he's playing a black guy and, you know, and it's Robert Downey Jr. So he's clearly not black, but he's wearing blackface the entire time. Mm. And, um, when, uh, which Henri talks about as well, you can read in the book for yourselves. But, um, one thing that he talks about, he's talking to Ben Stiller's character about why Ben Stiller played a movie where he was mentally disabled but it wasn't critically received. Critically, uh, it wasn't well received uh, critically. And and he explains the reason that he didn't win an award. The reason it wasn't well received is because, in his words, he went full retard. That's a quote from the film. Yeah. Um, but it's an explanation. And I, when I was reading this book, it that came to me is that you can't you can't go to an extent where you know there's no available. Uh, either redemption or no available flexibility. You know, if you're going to play a character that's so fully mentally handicapped, they can't interact. Mm. Well, you're not going to find that funny in the least. You're not going to find it that fun to watch. You're just going to feel sad the whole time. You know, Forrest Gump, which you've seen, right? Yeah. You know, Forrest Gump plays a, a incredibly mentally challenged person who's able to do a lot. And we, you know, we feel some sympathy for him because we can tell he's he's struggling in certain areas. But it's not he's it, we're not it's not like we're watching Sally Fields tend to her completely uh, mentally handicapped child for in it, two hours, right? Because right. that wouldn't be fun. Nobody would enjoy that, you know. So anyway, so just that that, that I, you know, this came out of the book for me as something is you can't go 
complete sympathetic characters because then again you can't separate from it to to have any kind of humor absolutely well and i think that's why why we don't laugh at people who are mentally handicapped or why why it's such a taboo is because if laughter is the a corrective it, it makes no sense to laugh at somebody who is in, unable to to change that rigid feature yeah, their issue isn't unawareness. Right. There, exactly. So I think that's big too. We laugh at somebody who has the um, ability to change and is just unconscious of their their rigidity. So that again, I, I don't know where I picked that up in the book, but that was just something that kind of stood out. Um, you know, where there are lines that that you can't cross, um, and that's true of all kinds of comedy. You know, and again, that's why stuff can stay and that's why stuff gets rejected it just depends on how far past that line you go yeah absolutely yeah i mean one of the the examples i i thought of was um like the really bad american idol auditions oh sure in the beginning like that makes us laugh so much because a lot of times these people are just terrible terrible singers but they have no idea that they're terrible like they've probably just only been around like encouraging friends who were too sweet to tell them that they sucked. So they walk in with this like arrogance of like Mariah Carey and then they start singing. And it's just awful. Like, you know, all of America becomes the corrective saying like, no, 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 honey, you need to wake up to the fact that you sound like shit. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, you know, half of that show, you know, is, is watching people fail, you know, that, that, that are irredeemable. You know, yeah, I'm trying to think of the guy who uh, some some early star that came out of that. He was singing She Bangs by uh, Ricky Martin. Some uh, <laughs> I can't remember his name. William Hung. William. Hung. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he became pretty famous, you know, by being this rigid character, you know, with, you know, that isn't going to change. And, you know, again, he's also not going to make it to the finals and he shouldn't make it even, I don't think, hopefully he didn't make it to a second audition because that would have been ridiculous. But because he was so funny, you know, you can hire him for $40 on uh, some program to wish your, you know, uncle happy birthday, you know, because he's still a celebrity in that sense. Like we still haven't forgotten. We enjoyed that, you know, ridiculousness because again, it's taking a fish out of water and putting them somewhere else and if it's funny enough and human enough and relatable, it's funny. Mm. You know, we, we, we stay laughing. Well, and he's one of those interesting characters to me because it's hard to tell if he is the comedian, like he's in on the joke or if he's the comic character, like, are we laughing at him or is he kind of conscious of this? You know what I'm saying? Like, is he deliberately being ridiculous? Are we being fooled? Yeah. Is he the fool or are we the fool? Right. Um, yeah, well, that's funny because I know that after him, like in years th- to come, and in fact, there is an improviser from South Florida who I think he made it to like the second or third audition. Like he made it to Vegas, like they brought mm. him to or wherever they bring people to these days. Like he made it. And he was, a, you know, he was fooling everybody on purpose. It was obvious or it should have yeah. been that he was not a legitimate talent. But he took that William Hung idea and, you know, again, pushed it pretty far. And now he's, you know, he's a character that people can support on Patreon or whatever. But Mm. um, so it's hard to say, you know, maybe again, like he may have been so good, we'll never know. Um, But certainly he he created these people that have since followed that are, you know, absolutely going in not to get famous per their singing talents, but just to get recognized as comedic talents. Right. And I think too, at least for me, something about that is less funny when, when you know that the person is kind of aware of the joke and purposely trying to act bad. I, and I think that's in large part, if Henri was here to talk about this with us, um, I think it's because their rigidness is actually hiding a flexible, like an available flexibility that they're not willing to show. Yeah. And I think that's it. Like, I think, you know, and, and we see that too. I think that's what bothers us is that we know that they're not genuine. Mm. Um, so we were rejected, but again, I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what, what, uh, comes from that, but you know, do you have any thoughts? Is there anything that you think? Well, where my, my mind went 
when you were talking about William Hung and kind of the appeal of American Idol, the appeal of watching those early episodes of American Idol, you were saying there's kind of a, a pleasure that we get in laughing. We kind of have this like superiority. And I think it also makes sense why it feels good to laugh, like through this conception of laughter. Like it feels good to laugh at somebody with the group because you're basically demonstrating by laughing at somebody who's breaking from the social norm that you are aware of the social norm and you are with it, you know, essentially. Yeah. And this wasn't from Bergson, but this was from um, this book called How to Be Funny by Steve Allen. He's talking about Plato. He says, uh, he said, Plato states that the pleasure we derive in laughing is an enjoyment of the misfortune of others due to a momentary feeling of superiority or gratified vanity that we ourselves are not in the predicament observed. Wow. Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, um, we must feel superior to these people, right? Like, again, mm. I think it goes back to kind of the judgment of it all. Um, we feel we're a little bit better. Um and or there's also maybe part of us that goes, oh, I know what that's like. I've been there. You know, so I think it's one of the two that but we can still laugh at both, whether mm-hmm. we've been there and can relate or whether we, we think, oh, that'll never be me. How funny. I think both could make us laugh. I think that's the could be the genius in a lot of things like, say, Will Ferrell does, because I, I feel like he's a character that Bergson was talking about this whole time or a lot of the characters he portrays. Yeah. Um, these absent minded, you know, full of themselves characters that don't know the world that they're in. And we get to peer in and see it, you know, for a while. Yeah, totally. Well, and there's also that speaks to like, um, I know Del Close, the famous kind of improviser, he, he talks about something called the laugh of recognition where a person laughs not because they think something's funny, but to basically to communicate to others that they get the joke. And mm. he said the worst offenders of this would be somebody who, you know, a really sophisticated uh, hipster comedy club where they make a really, you know, um, pretentious joke. And somebody might not actually laugh, but they, they want to fit in with all the other hipsters there, so they laugh along with it. And again, it's sure. the kind of signal like, I get it. I'm I'm with the rest of the group. Yeah, like yeah. classic uh, Confucius. You know, he who laughs last, last didn't get the joke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. I haven't heard that one. I'm not sure if it's Confucius, but it's definitely you know a, a statement out there. But um, <laughs> it's right in line with Do Close, which is pretty great. Yeah, um, and also like you know, th- there's that. And then to refer back to something, you know, Henri brings up much earlier is the idea that, uh, you know, it, it, like if a comedian was doing a set in front of a sole person, no matter how funny that one person thinks the jokes could be or whatever, there, you know, it's so much easier to laugh in a room full of people. Yeah. And again, and when that first person laughs, that's permission to the rest. We can all laugh. Mm. You know, we're all allowed to enjoy this. Yeah. Um, but sometimes... You know, without that or in an echo chamber, you know, an echo chamber with one person, you may not laugh at something that normally you could be, you know, crying laughing at because you don't have that other experience. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I I think about like laugh tracks and I think that's one of the things that's for me so kind of disgusting about laugh tracks is it's basically somebody saying like, we're going to tell you where to laugh. We're going to tell you what's socially acceptable. Yeah, uh, fun fact for those at home, um, the laugh track was created by Bing Crosby. <laughs> um, Bing Crosby, his who's jokes in San Diego, uh, where I reside now, he was a longtime resident and big developer of this area. Um, he he invested early, well early into uh, recording tape and mm. stuff and recording devices. And he was um, prolific at like doing radio shows or whatever. And one thing that he did was he would he would record a bunch and then release them. He was one of the first performers to ever like release stuff after the fact. Um, and had some long, again, longer story short, had a comedian that came on a show that did probably some like blue material or stuff that they just couldn't pass, but still very well received by the audience. 
they took his laughter, the laughter from the audience on the jokes that they really probably couldn't play, and they used that to fill up later shows indefinitely. Wow. And it became the very first laugh track ever used. And then and again, like you hear you hear someone tell an average joke and you hear an audience explode laughing, you're gonna probably chuckle to yourself or, you know, think something's wrong with you. Right. And then and thus and to avoid that great fear, you laugh and then right. you listen again and laugh. Wow. So, I love that story too, because the the fact that it was the really off color stuff that got such a huge reaction and they couldn't air it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, and, and, and it forever affected, uh, comedy. I mean, like I've seen, you know, there's a thing that's been around for a while where they show, um, friends without a laugh track. It's Mm. horrible. I mean, it's weird. Uh, they show like, uh, Ross, I think that's the character's name. Uh, David Schwimmer's character. Mm -hmm. When you watch his, his character's involvement in the show he just comes off like a sociopath. You think he's a complete psycho <laughs> because nothing he says is incredibly funny unless you hear Rah! you know all this laughter coming in. Otherwise, it's like, oh my god, are they going to ask that guy to leave the apartment? Oh so. my gosh! Wow, I need to ch- I need to check that out. That sounds hilarious. Um, well, we talked a lot about the uh, you know, the social function of of humor. We talked about rigidity quite a bit. There were a few other kind of conditions of laughter that he he talks about that I found pretty interesting. Uh, he talks about um, we find it funny when it seems that a person has no free will and is more or less being like pulled like in all directions like a puppet. And um, he also says like a lot of times when a comedy writer will show this kind of um, lack of free will, mm-hmm. they will actually personify the thing that is pulling the character in one direction or another. He says, quote, a comic author is always careful to personify the two opposing decisions. And so I thought of like, you, you know, when you see the angel and the devil on the shoulder, Right. This is oftentimes really funny to us because it's it's implicitly saying that the the person doesn't have any agency. They're kind of, you know, it's either this angel angel or the devil that uh gets to control what they do. Right. And um like the a modern example I thought of I recently started watching the show uh Big Mouth. Okay, yeah, sure. Very classic. Yeah, classic uh, representation of that same thing. Yeah, where the the way they show this is basically like a a teenager has this like puberty monster who comes around and is basically like whispering in his ear like, do it, do this, like touch your boobs, touch your boobs. And it's funny to us because again, it's like, it's almost like the, the teenager doesn't have any agency. It's like this other monster who is personified who is calling the shots. Yeah, no, it's funny, and, and it's classic. I mean, the Faustian uh, offer is is within that, too. Oftentimes, I don't see an angel represented. You know, like, I think we see more devils represented than angels, and I don't know mm. if that means that we are the angels, like, you know, that we have an angel already that's, like, you know, doesn't need to be shown, that we're kind of this angelic mm. thing that only gets thrown off by this external thing. But I think, I, I think we've seen it both ways. I think we see the angel and the devil but I think more commonly in a lot of things, we just see the devil, which again, for me now implies that we're angelic or right to begin with. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. In the, in the show, um, big mouth, it's just the puberty monster who is kind of always trying to do him some, trying to get him to do something sexual, like, come on, man, yeah. kiss her, touch your boobs. And he, the character himself acts as the conscience is saying like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, again, that's just such a funny implication that we're naturally okay. You know, it's these other external things that could only cause us problems. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, cool, man. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun 
And yeah, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. And, uh, and yeah, my understanding of comedy has increased quite a bit from this. Yeah. And I want to learn more like it, you know, again, I, I think, uh, it's that idea of, you know, as soon as you know how much you know, you realize how little you know. Like once you, you know, I don't know who, who came up with that great idea, but yeah. somebody ancient and smart. <laughs> yeah, I think that was Socrates. Yeah, and yeah, totally. I, I feel the same way. This kind of like uh, definitely sp- lit a spark for me in wanting to explore this even further. Well, again, thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck with all your future podcasts. I hope to be on one again in the future. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write us a review or give us a rating. All that stuff helps out a ton. So thanks for doing that in advance. If you would like to get in touch with me or to hear about what's coming up next on the podcast, visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast. And finally, if you would like to hear more from my guest, Patrick, or to get in touch with him, or if you are an improviser or a lover of improv comedy in the San Diego area in California, uh, visit improvsandiego.com. And I'll also provide a link in the show notes. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.